This episode is brought to you by State Farm. If you're a small business owner, you know that it isn't just your business, it's your life. And whatever your business might be, you want someone who understands. That's why you might want to check out State Farm Small Business Insurance. Why? Because State Farm agents are small business owners too, living and working in your community. That means they know what it takes to help you personalize your policies for your small business needs. Like a good neighbor, State Farm is there. Talk to your local agent today. You know how to book flights and hotels. All you're missing is a tool to help you plan that unbelievable travel experience. That's why you need Viator. Book guided tours, excursions, and more in one place. There are over 300,000 travel experiences to choose from, so you can find something for everyone. And Viator offers free cancellation and 24-7 customer support for worry-free travel. Download the Viator app now and use code Viator10 for 10% off your first booking in the app. Find travel experiences for you. Do more with Viator. Hi, I'm Kara Swisher, editor-at-large of Recode. You may know me as someone who loves the First Amendment, but the number 19 is pretty good too. But in my spare time, I talk tech and you're listening to Recode Decode from the Vox Media Podcast Network. Today in the red chair is Jamil Jaffer, the executive director of the Knight First Amendment Institute. It's a group at Columbia University that defends the freedoms of speech and press in the digital age. And just recently, they've challenged the way Facebook deals with journalists and scholars, and they were also bothering Donald Trump. Jamil, welcome to Recode Decode. Thanks very much. Really so appreciate it. I love all the things you're doing, and that's the reason I wanted to have you on here. There's so much interesting stuff you're doing there. So let's talk about how you got there. How did you get there, and how did the Knight—explain what the Knight First Amendment Institute is. But sure. you first. Yeah, okay. Well, so I was uh, a lawyer at the ACLU for— 15 years. I've heard of them. Um, yeah, just down the street, actually. <laughs> uh, when this when this building was Goldman Sachs, I was at the ACLU. This and, building um, was Goldman Sachs? It was oh, Goldman really? Sachs, yeah, just until a couple of years oh, ago. Oh, man. But I worked at the ACLU starting in 2002, so soon after 9-11, and mainly at the beginning on national security-related cases, cases involving immigration detainees, uh, cases involving Guantanamo, and then cases involving the Patriot Act and government surveillance and First Amendment-related questions. And, you know, that grew, that practice grew. It eventually became a formal project at the ACLU focused on national security issues, and I ran that project for a few years. Uh, and then um, when I left the ACLU a couple of years ago, I was the director of something called the Center for Democracy, which covered the ACLU, the national ACLU's work on free speech, privacy, national security technology and international human rights. Obviously, I was not doing all that work myself, but a lot of people at the ACLU I was working with on it. Uh, but I was doing that, and then the Knight First Amendment Institute was created at Columbia. It was really the project of Lee Bollinger, who's the president of Columbia, and Alberto Ibarguen, who's the president of the Knight Foundation. And they had had conversations over many years about the possibility of setting up something like this. And the main the main insight that they had was that the big Supreme Court precedents from the 1960s and 70s uh, involving free speech were precedents created in an era that looked very, very different from the one we're in right, right now, where the threats to the First Amendment were quite different from the ones we're facing right mm -hmm. now. And all of the things that raise complicated free speech questions right now, like the privatization of the public square or mm -hmm. new That's surveillance technology, 
search engines. Like none of these things existed, you know, back when the Supreme Court decided the Pentagon Papers case or New York Times versus Sullivan uh, or the cases, you know, the big hits from sure. from the 60s and 70s. So they thought we need an institute that will focus on the edge of technology and the edge of the law and these questions that new technology uh, is presenting for so many the questions. First Amendment. Yeah. Why did you? What, what interested you in the First Amendment in doing this as a as a lawyer? Well, you know, I became a First Amendment uh, lawyer almost incidentally. I was, as I said, a kind of national security lawyer. But a lot of the national security cases I worked on turned out to be First Amendment cases. Uh, I worked on a lot of transparency cases. In fact, the the um, the case I probably spent most time on at the ACLU was a Freedom of Information Act case involving interrogation under the Bush administration. And that case we filed in 2004. It's still running today. You were trying today. to get information out. Yeah, we were trying to get documents about the um, treatment of prisoners in military and CIA custody. And the case was, as these kinds of cases go, a very successful one. It resulted in the release of what are sometimes called the torture memos, the Bush administration's torture memos, uh, a lot of information about uh, maltreatment of prisoners at Guantanamo, eventually this CIA inspector general report that led to a prosecution, uh, 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 criminal investigation by the Obama administration. So it was a you know relatively successful case. That's the one I spent most of my time on. But I did a lot of other cases involving the exclusion of foreign scholars from the United States because of their political views, a lot of cases involving government surveillance, um, especially post-Snowden. We represented Snowden when I was at the ACLU, and we also brought uh, a whole series of cases challenging the constitutionality of some of the surveillance programs that he disclosed or helped or helped disclose. Um, and I argued some of those cases just down the block from here uh, in right. the Second Circuit, and one of them went to the Supreme Court in 2012. And we're still now at the Knight Institute working on one of those cases with the ACLU uh, where we represent Wikimedia in a challenge to a particular kind of NSA surveillance. And these turn out to be, you know, privacy cases, but also First Amendment cases. Yes, hand in hand, yeah. And, you know, as you know, the national security has always been the kind of crucible of the First Amendment. Mm -hmm. And so being a national security lawyer can turn you into a First Amendment lawyer. Uh, so over time, I became uh, a First Amendment lawyer, too, and the opportunity to help start something new at Columbia with the resources of Columbia and the Knight Foundation and with people like Lee Bollinger and Alberto Ibarguen and Steve Cole and Nick Lemon from the Journalism School mm -hmm. uh, involved. I mean, that was a very exciting thing. So what, uh, do you, what is your charge? What are you supposed to do? You're supposed to look, study these and do what? Yeah, so the, the idea is or? to, well, <laughs> we try to limit the meetings, but uh, the idea is or to like defend. Colloquia? No. Colloquia. We, <laughs> we haven't yet done a colloquium. We should look into that. But, yeah. but um, Why not? Yeah, so we have a research program and a litigation program. Those are the two main components of the Institute. You know, they do what you would expect them to do. The research program is an effort to understand these threats, to understand what opportunities and what threats are presented by new technology. Uh, and the litigation program is our way of defending free speech and uh, the freedom of the press in relation to this new technology. And that, you, you know, maybe that already sounds complicated, but it's actually more complicated than, than it sounds because especially now there's um, a lot of disagreement about what the First Amendment means. So, uh, oh, yeah. yeah, it's all, you know, it's great to defend the First Amendment, but first you have to decide, well, what is this thing that you're defending? And, you know, there's a real debate about... You know, you—I uh, don't know how closely you follow Supreme Court 
uh, decisions relating to the First Amendment, but uh, this recent case um, uh, involving labor unions in which Justice Kagan dissented and she accused the majority of weaponizing the First Amendment. I love that. I use that term myself. Yeah, well, so, so you know, this is, she's Justice Kagan isn't the only one who's mm-hmm. used those kinds of phrases in relation to some First Amendment arguments. And so there's this important question of what values the First Amendment is meant to uh, meant to protect. So the research program is our effort to struggle with those. Uh, so what questions. are the research? Would it give me give examples, and we'll get into the specific. Sure. Yeah. Just so um, uh, one example, we have a, a, an essay series called uh, "Emerging Threats," where we're focused on emerging threats to the First Amendment or emerging threats to the system of free expression. Uh, we published a paper by Tim Wu that was the first one we published called "Is the First Amendment Obsolete?" And he was uh, thinking about new threats to the First Amendment, like instead of censorship, flooding an information space, mm-hmm. or instead of uh, seems you know, to work really well. Yeah, apparently it does. Or you know, instead of having your henchmen go to somebody's door and threaten them, uh, you just harass them on social media, right? So there are these kinds of threats to the First Amendment that the First Amendment isn't really. Um, well-suited, at least in its current form, uh, to address. And Tim's paper was about that, and that was Mm -hmm. the first one we published. But we published uh, another paper by Heather Whitney about the search engines and the proper analogy you should use. Should we think of them as editors, or should we think of search engines as more like shopping malls, or should we think of them as something else? Uh, That was another one in that series. Recently, we we published one by Jack Goldsmith, uh, who's a former Bush administration lawyer, on uh, what he calls the failure of internet freedom um, because in his view, the internet freedom agenda that the United States put forward, especially during the Clinton administration, has been a spectacular failure and we now see uh, we now see that domestically as well as internationally. So that's an essay series that we're overseeing. We also did a not quite a colloquium, but a symposium All right. uh, a few months ago with the Columbia Law Review on the First Amendment and inequality. But the hope is that this research will inform our litigation decisions, and it already has to some extent, but I think it'll become the research will become even more important over time. The hope is that there's a relationship between the right. two. Right. So now the litigation part. Yeah. So talk about the two things, the ones that. Yeah, yeah, sure. So, so um, we now have a fairly, you know, we're only two years old, but we have mm-hmm. a fairly. How much money do you have to do all this? Um, we could use more if, okay. if you're offering, but. No, I'm not. Um, yeah, we we were established with uh, an operational commitment from the Knight Foundation and Columbia, $5 million in, from each of those over five years. Mm-hmm. So we had this sort of base, um, generous base funding to, to start yeah, with. Is. And we have since been able to raise some money from a whole set of organizations across the political spectrum. Um, the Democracy Fund, which is associated with Pierre Omidyar, uh, Sounds uh, like a PR thing. Yeah, the Koch Foundation, Charles Koch Foundation, um, Open Society. But you have to for take one from each Carnegie. side. <laughs> well, we try. You know, we try to have a diverse. Uh, well, as long as they're that's not meddling the with you, I don't care. They're not meddling. To the contrary, um, they have been generous supporters of the work that we want to do. Yeah, as long uh, as they keep their yeah. dirty paws out, I'm good. Yeah, not like yeah. an Eric Schmidt kind of thing yeah. down over at the. No, new. It, well, it turns out to be you know a relatively good time to raise money for this kind of mm-hmm. uh, project, but at the same time, there's a lot of work to do. So, all right, you know. so. Talk about the litigation stuff that you're doing. One of the one of the first cases we filed, probably the case that's got the most attention so far, is a challenge to President Trump's practice of blocking critics on Twitter. From his personal thing or his his from at real Donald Trump. Right. Which his, he, that characterizes, is his he characterizes he characterizes it right, characterizes it as his 
personal account. But our complaint with that characterization is that he uses the account for official purposes. So, Mm -hmm. for example, to announce the appointment of people to government posts or to uh, engage in uh, international diplomacy, if that's the right phrase, um, or to defend— international trolling, but go ahead. International trolling, right, right, or to defend or describe government policies for all sorts of official purposes. Uh, and if you go, it's not to like his, you should go watch this game. This no, it's baseball. not. It used to be that way, you mm-hmm. know, before he became president. Mm-hmm. But once he became president, he started using it almost entirely I for these. But go ahead. Yeah, I don't well, think he knows how to shift between them. But all right, okay. I, no, I think that that's prob- probably true. But mm-hmm. most of but he's using it. That he's way, using right? it that way. Right. And uh, when people criticize him or mock him for his decisions. Uh, or for his statements about his decisions, sometimes he blocks them. Right. Or Dan Scavino and, does, whoever's doing it. Or Dan Scavino it. does. Yeah. It's, you know, we happen to know that it was President Trump with respect to our clients because mm-hmm. in the litigation, the government has disclosed that. Yeah. But— um, Can't you see him there jabbing his little fingers like, eh, this guy. Well, apparently, you know, I apparently he it. does it personally. Yeah. He personally blocks them um, uh, out of, I guess, peak. That, yeah. You know, yeah. So, well, that's how you block people, just so you know. It's, no, it's I guess not, that's true. He, he that's, shouldn't that's, be unfairly He's not character. special in that he's particular. He's not special. That's, that's I've right. done I'm like, you, right. God. Right. right. But you're not a government official. No, I'm not, but I'm just yeah, so, I'm going to give him a break on that one. There's one way to look at this, and you know, this is a, a trivial thing. He's blocking people on Twitter. Is it the end of the world? And, you know, obviously, if you look at it that way, it's not. There's um, a principle at stake here. Well, it's not just Jamil. a principle at stake, but— um, No, there is. There is actually a principle at stake. Well, there is a principle, Sam. I'm saying it's not only a principle. Right, you know, okay. th- th- This is the way that public officials engage with their constituents now. Mm-hmm. It's not just President Trump. It's public officials all over the country engage with their constituents, maybe principally through social media. And if you create a rule that allows public officials to block from their social media accounts anyone who criticizes them, you're going to have a pretty dramatic right. effect on public discourse. Absolutely. So, I'm you know, good we, with this lawsuit. Yeah, so Jamil. we took on the lawsuit. Not everybody was, especially mm-hmm. when we initially brought it. You know, when, when we brought the lawsuit— they frivolous or— yeah, we made the argument that this was um, that the president's Twitter account should be uh, thought of as a public forum under mm-hmm. the First Amendment, mm-hmm. uh, with the consequence that if a public yeah. official blocks somebody from that forum, it's unconstitutional, violates the First Amendment. And I think it took people a little bit uh, of time to come around to that view. But now my impression is that most First Amendment advocates and scholars are on our side. Uh, more importantly, the district court is on the, on our side and issued a ruling. Uh, a couple of months ago in our favor, holding that this practice of blocking people uh, on the basis of viewpoint is unconstitutional. And the Trump administration has now unblocked our clients and uh, dozens of other people in response to that ruling. Uh, it is also appealing the ruling, though, so we'll be in the Second Circuit. And then um, what? Where does it go to? Does this go to the Supreme Court? Uh, you know, I hope that they, you know, I— They stop. I, I hope, my hope was that they wouldn't appeal it, but they, they're appealing to the Second Circuit and if we win in the Second what? Circuit. So he can they, block anyone he damn well pleases? Essentially, yes. Yeah. Yes. Uh, the argument is that notwithstanding the fact that he uses it in the ways that he uses it, notwithstanding the fact that if you go to his profile page, the account is said to belong to the president of the United States and there's a big photograph of Air Force One mm-hmm. on the page, uh, notwithstanding all of that, their argument okay. is that it's a personal account. Yeah. So where do you imagine this going? Well, you know, it's already had uh, a pretty significant effect around the country, which is very gratifying to see uh, other public officials who have adopted this practice of blocking their critics from their social media accounts. Oh, he doesn't uh, have an Air Force One now. He has a, a rally. Oh, now it's a rally. Yeah, yeah it changes okay. every right, okay. few days. Yeah. Yeah. 
But it's always something involving, or usually something involving, his official work. But there are public officials all over the country that have adopted this practice of blocking critics on social media, and now people are writing to them citing, among other things, or citing principally this decision that we got from the uh, Southern District of New York here. Uh, and it's very gratifying to see public officials, Democrats and Republicans, uh, reconsidering their social media policies in right. response to this litigation. Right. And so, so it should end there, that they can't do that. But it should. It should end there. So when we get back, we're going to talk more about the stuff you're working on with Facebook and some other issues around the First Amendment on all these tech companies, which has become a big topic of late. We're here with Jamil Jaffer from the Knight First Amendment Institute at Columbia. This episode is brought to you by State Farm. You've heard it before. Like a good neighbor, State Farm is there. But it's more than just a tagline. Because State Farm agents are small business owners themselves who live and work in your community. And if you're in the market for small business insurance, who better to work with than an agent who understands what it takes? State Farm agents can help you create a personalized insurance plan that fits your small business needs and budget. Talk to your local State Farm agent today about small business insurance. Like a good neighbor, State Farm is there. Support for this show comes from Slack. You're a growing business and you can't afford to slow down. If anything, you could probably use a few more hours in the day. That's why the most successful growing businesses are working together in Slack. Slack is where work happens with all your people, data, and information in one AI-powered place. Start a call instantly in huddles and ditch cumbersome calendar invites. Or build an automation with Workflow Builder to take routine tasks off your plate. No coding required. Grow your business in Slack. Visit slack.com to get started. We're here with Jamil Jaffer from the Knight First Amendment Institute at Columbia. We've been talking about some of the things they're doing there, including a, a, a lawsuit against President Trump blocking people on Twitter, which is kind of a, a novel and unusual thing to talk about, but it's actually very important. Recently, you've been doing some things around Facebook. Can you tell people about it? Yeah, sure. So as everybody knows, Facebook has, or should know, Facebook has terms of service that um, restrict how users can use its platform. And the terms of service, in many respects, make sense. But one consequence of the terms of service is that journalists and researchers who want to study uh, Facebook's platform are impeded from doing so. And they're impeded from doing so because Facebook bars them from using some basic digital tools. Uh, for example, scraping information from, you know, collecting by automated, mm-hmm. uh, uh, automated means information from the platform or using temporary accounts, temporary research accounts to prompt the platform or, you know, try to figure out how the platform will respond to certain kinds of Mm -hmm. prompts. And there are many journalists and researchers who study the platform who've been able to do a lot of good work in spite of those restrictions. But these restrictions are increasingly limiting uh, their ability to study, not just Facebook, but other platforms mm-hmm. as well, which have and similar And these aren't people who just want to do something for a business sense. Explain. These are people who are doing research and understanding how the platform works. Yeah, basically, yeah. Y- you know, a, a whole lot of what we know about how Facebook works and how Facebook affects the world. And obviously, yeah. Facebook and other platforms now have a huge if, you know, not fully understood effect on public discourse, uh, not just here in the United States, but around the world. 
uh, what we know about the effect that social media platforms are having on public discourse, we know because digital because of the work that digital journalists and researchers have done. So the Cambridge Analytica uh, story, for example, is a result of work done by The Guardian or right. – um, you know, Julia Angwin has done a lot of work about discriminatory ads on Facebook. Mm-hmm. Cash Hill has written about uh, the people you may know tool. And, you know, all of these, uh, uh, all of this journalism has told us a lot more about um, how, how, this, the, how, how they the work. How the platform is working or not working, mostly not working. Yeah, working correctly. or not working and shaping public discourse and mm-hmm. thereby shaping our society, right? And, uh, you know, some of these things are... Um, uh, you know, discriminatory ads are, you know, I think Julia was focused principally on the effects domestically, but some of the effects uh, of the social media platforms are very significant internationally. Uh, the New York Times has written about ethnic violence in Myanmar mm-hmm. or ethnic violence Everybody in Sri Lanka. Right. Yeah. right. And, and um, this is reporting that is especially crucial right now uh, because nobody, and certainly not the platforms, uh, nobody fully understands mm-hmm. um, the implications of the decisions. Right. So that people the are chipping are away and the stuff, and so right. they were blocking it. And so yeah, so they want... they want to study the platform, and there are these restrictions that prevent them from using the tools right. uh, that would be most useful to them. And the the restrictions generally make sense. It's you know it's entirely understandable why Facebook wants to limit its. Yes, they're looking. Um, they're worried about abuse. People yeah, they're abuse. worried that people will. Um, Abuse the privacy of their uh, right. their users. Their you know their, good instinct. Yeah, the entirely good instinct, and especially right now, you know, in the wake of the Cambridge Analytica s- uh, scandal, Facebook and Twitter and other platforms are under a lot of pressure to uh, crack down on or to 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 uh, ensure that that kind of abuse doesn't occur. Right. So you know, all that is understandable. But one one effect of those general prohibitions is to prevent journalists and researchers from doing work that we really need them to do right now. Mm-hmm. So we've gone to Facebook and we've said, will you create a safe harbor, amend your terms of service to make it possible for journalists and researchers to use these tools to scrape the platform, public information from the platform. Our safe harbor is focused only on public information, uh, information that users decide to make public. Uh, but we've said, can you create a safe harbor so that journalists and researchers can scrape that kind of information from the platform uh, or that, uh, or so that they can use temporary research accounts to see how the platform responds to different kinds of profiles? And can you assure them that you won't invoke the terms of service against them right. uh, if they take on public interest projects? Um, that may be at cross-purposes th- to your... Well, you, you mean that Facebook... Yeah, that would be uh, negative towards Facebook. Well, it could be. You know, some of it could be negative towards Facebook. Um, I mean, certainly, the you know, the Cambridge Analytica story was negative towards Facebook in a sense. Yeah. Although it was once, pointing out a, a, a yeah, glaring hole. It was protecting they, Facebook's users, right? Yep. That story protects Facebook users and Facebook Same changed thing its with policies. Discriminatory advertising. Right. Right. Facebook has changed its policies in response to the, the Guardian's right. reporting around right. Cambridge Analytica, in response to ProPublica's reporting around discriminatory advertising. So, yes, uh, some of it could be embarrassing to, to Facebook. Um, but some of it could also be very useful to Facebook and, more importantly, Make it a uh, crucial for its users. Right. Yeah. So that's the idea. Um, and where are you on this? Where- so we wrote to them about a month ago. We asked them to... Uh, respond by just after Labor Day, and they responded very graciously, uh, and we've been in a conversation with them since. I think it's too early to say whether um, whether that conversation is going to lead anywhere, but 
we're so glad it's a to be in the loosening of rules for specific research projects. Yeah, I mean, it's you know, to be honest, it's a it's a kind of hard balance to to strike here because again, you know, we're very sympathetic to. And the it, privacy let's, let's be clear for listeners who don't know, the Cambridge Analytica thing started with a university. That's right. Doing it. That's right. So you, you don't want to create a situation he where just because it's a research, yeah, just because it's a researcher, it's okay. You know, you can't create that kind of situation. Right. So the 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 safe harbor that we drafted, again, it's focused only on public information, uh, and then it requires journalists and researchers to observe certain safeguards or limitations. So, for example, you have to protect Facebook's users' privacy. Uh, you have to take measures to make sure that the information you collect isn't going to be inadvertently disclosed. Right. You can't uh, transfer it to a third party. You can't transfer it, for example, to a data aggregator or to any other commercial enterprise. Uh, you can use it only to inform the public about matters of public concern. And obviously, there's going to be disagreement about the the mm-hmm. meaning of some of these terms, and mm-hmm. Facebook's going to have to flesh it out over time. Facebook would have to uh, decide over time which projects it was willing to uh, allow and which ones it was going to shut down. Right. But in our view, that's a better situation than we're in right now, where Facebook has effectively categorically prohibited all of this journalism and research from taking place. Right. And an open platform, presumably, a platform yeah. that's relatively open. Yeah. So, what, so these are the kind of things. What Are you doing anything around Twitter or things like that? Or, Well, um, you mean aside from our lawsuit yeah. against President Trump, which yeah. is not against Twitter. It's, right. yeah, it's about Twitter, but not against Twitter. So on the research side, we are um, just now uh, launching a project focused on uh, regulation of the social media platforms. Oh, Jamal Green is a, a Columbia law professor who is now going to be visiting at the Knight Institute. He's not visiting from very far away, but he's mm-hmm. visiting at the Knight Institute for the next year. Um, he's a constitutional scholar there, and he's going to focus on— What they um, should do. Yeah, what they should do, and we have been uh, commissioning my, papers on this, yeah. you know, on this question. He's going to be my new best friend. Well, like uh, you know, know. nobody—they're um, hard questions. They're yeah. hard questions. And— um, you know, we've been thinking through them ourselves, but the point of this visiting scholars program is to bring in other people as well from right. uh, not just the academy, but from right. ideally but, from the companies as well. But dealing about this, um, it's, what's going to be really important is think is like how they're going to regulate and and what it's going to manifest itself. Because I think the minute the Democrats get back, there's going to be some. If they get back, there's going to be some reckoning. Yeah, I, I think that's probably right. I mean, if I if I were at one of the companies, I would be working very hard on uh, self-regulation, you know, in order to— Republicans winning. (laughs) Well, I'm not sure about that, but— I'm just saying. Yeah, you know, there's a lot that the companies can do on their own Mm -hmm. that would help them if there were a more serious debate about regulation. Yeah. Low-hanging fruit would be transparency. You right. know, more transparency about what kinds of decisions they're making, what the effects of those decisions I are. I just wrote a column in the New York Times today I know, saying I saw that. It, but, Transparent. Yeah. I just like some transparency. Yeah. I mean, I think that, um, you know, now there seems to be, I think, broad agreement, maybe overstating it, but uh, broader than there was, you know, a year ago, that the social media companies should be more transparent about mm-hmm. which accounts they're taking down and why they're taking them down. You know, there are these Santa Clara p- principles that some advocacy groups have put together that mm-hmm. have to do with providing notice to people who are affected by those decisions, giving them an opportunity to appeal, um, disclosure of statistics about you know how many of these decisions are being made and you know and how, how many accounts are taking down. Yeah, but you know one. Um, one observation about the debate so far is that 
the debate has focused, at least the public debate, I, I think that the academic debate and the debate among sort of technologists is is a deeper one than this, but the public debate has focused on these very uh, spectacular censorship, this is spectacular yeah. in the sense that they get tons of attention, like Alex Jones, right? Right. And, you know, there are hundreds or thousands of these decisions made every day yes, that are. aren't affecting people like Alex Jones. They're and affecting people who seconds. are on the margins, you know. Yeah. Um, yeah, made in seconds or yeah. made by machines, right? Mm -hmm. And, you know, I do worry that the debate, a debate focused on Alex, jo Alex Jones gives people the impression that uh, we can just say the voices we really don't like will be kept off the platforms and everything else will be the same. Uh, you know, I do worry about marginalized voices that do not have, um, that aren't noticed in the way that Alex Jones is, uh, whose accounts are taken down or whose posts are taken down. And, you know, the debate should encompass the... How and know, how they do these things. And how they do these things. And so right. that's, that's one part of it. But the other thing is uh, focusing just on the Alex Jones style cases, which are about account takedowns or posts mm -hmm. that are taken down. I think that's too narrow too, because, you know, as you know, these maybe the more fundamental content curation that these platforms engage in every day is just through algorithmic decisions that mm -hmm. you know prioritization yeah. like which information you see which information mm -hmm. you don't see um, and I think there's a good argument that Alex Jones's power comes not so much from his access to the platform but from the fact that the platform's algorithms privilege that kind of speech yes and which I, Nicole was talking about the pillars yeah. change the pillars and then you'll see a change in what's what wins. Yeah. Yeah. No, I think I the think that's of like uh, what she was talking about was you know their engagement, speed, and something else are 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 right. She's the slow food movement. Yeah. For, yeah. 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 No, I think that you know the focus on Alex Jones. I'm not saying it's unwarranted, but I I, I do worry that you know it's taking it's shifting attention away from the responsibility of the platforms and to be more clear about how they do what rules they make and why how they well do and things. the fact that they they you know they make these decisions on a sort of second by second basis is not just about uh, taking down accounts it's about uh, how you prioritize the information you know mm -hmm. which information you decide to show me and when you decide right. to show it to me and in what form you decide to show it to me why is it that Alex Jones's speech spread so quickly um, you know maybe you can put some of that on Alex Jones but some of it's on Facebook and some mm -hmm. of it's on Twitter right uh, some of it has to do with their algorithms so I think you know we should have that sort of broader conversation about the role that the social media companies are playing in shaping and arguably distorting public public discourse. Right. Because one of the things that I think in the next section we'll talk about that is they, they get, you know, I was having an argument with someone about about Alex Jones, and I, they were like, they shouldn't do this first amendment. And I said, they do it all the time. Are, are yeah. you kidding me? Yeah. Like, I, I have them go on and on about how they protect the first amendment. I'm like, do you know how many people they've taken down? And by the way, you ever heard of Chuck Jones? Uh, it's Chuck Jones, right? They took him down. They, they didn't like him. They didn't like his words. He violated their things, and then they got off. That was it. Yeah, I, it, I mean, I think that, that— Or they move things down in priority. Or right, They, move, they right, bury right. things. Yeah, and, I, you know, to recognize that is, you know, that that's to recognize something important, but it doesn't tell you anything about what, what the solution is, right? right. So, yeah, they do no. it all the time. Right. But then, I'm only so saying what? that because yeah. they pretend they don't. They're like, yeah. oh no, we're back. No, in no, the first I know. Amendment. I agree with you. Yeah. I, yeah, I agree with you. But I just think that the the hard question doesn't get presented until you recognize that they do it all the time. Now we recognize they do it all the time. 
Well, what's the answer? So on the, on the one hand, you have the platform saying, well, we have a First Amendment right to create the kinds of communities we want to create. And that's a plausible argument. And on the other hand, you have the very real concern that centralizing the power to control debate in the social media companies um, would be the worst thing in the world, which is also a very, you know, right. a very serious argument. Right. And, you know, the First Amendment is concerned principally with centralization of power in the government, centralization of the power over— But not this. Uh, yeah, this, this, the First Amendment doesn't obviously have Never very much to say about this. Never yeah. well, We're going to talk about the privatization of the public sphere, which you talked about, which I think is a really great way to put it. When we get back, we're here with Jamil Jaffer. He's from the Knight First Amendment Institute at Columbia. Eurovision is here. This year's contest gets underway this week in Malmö, Sweden, but this year's contest comes with a dose of controversy. I'll give you one guess as to what people are mad about. Yes, correct. It's that. Organizers of the Eurovision Song Contest say they are assessing whether Israel's entry breaks the rules on political neutrality. I think it's a shame. I think there's no way that, that Israel should be able to participate Pro-Palestinian protesters are taking to the Swedish streets. More than a thousand Swedish artists, including Robin, have called for an Israel ban. Some European politicians are joining them. Charlie Harding from Switched On Pop joins us this week on Today Explained to help us figure out if Europe can sing its way out of this situation. We're here with Jamil Jaffer. He's from the Knight First Amendment Institute at Columbia. And we're just talking about a whole range of ideas around how these social media companies monitor themselves or, or don't have, or lack of monitoring of themselves. But one of the things you said early on was this idea of the privatization of the public space. And I think in his testimony last week, Jack uh, Dorsey called Twitter the public square. And I was like, no, it's not. It, it is, but it's not. Mm-hmm. And if it is, then he gets to be regulated if he's the public square or something like that. And so talk a little bit about what you mean by the privatization of the public sphere. Yeah. Um, well, I think what I mean by that is that conversations that used to take place um, in spaces that were subject to the First Amendment are now taking place in spaces that are controlled by private actors and therefore not subject to the First Amendment. Now, public square is used in a lot of different ways in a lot of different contexts. There was this decision a couple of years ago, the Packingham decision that Justice Kennedy wrote, in which he described the social media platforms as the public square, and Justice Alito wrote a concurrence, uh, effectively scolding uh, Justice Kennedy for using that language, saying, you know, you don't want to go down that road. You don't even mean what you're saying. Uh, you know, so there's this debate at the level of uh, legal doctrine, you know, mm-hmm. um, are the social media companies of public squares or not? Then there's a question, you know, sort of in a in a more practical way. I know Zainab Tefeki has has resisted the idea of calling these social media companies public squares because really their whole model is based on feeding you just information information that's really made just for you. So it's right. the opposite of a public square in a yeah. way. And then but, it's interested in grabbing information from you to feed yeah. advertisers. Yeah, I mean, certainly, you know, they're not publicly, no. uh, you know, they're they're not, they're, their interest is not a public interest. They're right. commercial, you know, no, corporations. And they you're walking across the public right. square and this is how they're walking across. And here's, they might want an ice cream right here because they right. seem hot. Right, like, right, right. I mean, so there's this whole level of surveillance under, yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah. Yeah, a whole level of surveillance under the speech, mm-hmm. and they're monetizing the results of that that surveillance. So that you know, in in those respects, it doesn't look like a public square, right? 
But there's no question that these companies have um, immense power to decide not just who can speak, but also who gets heard, right? Who can speak because they decide who gets onto the platforms and who doesn't, mm -hmm. but who can be heard because their algorithms decide what speech gets prioritized and right. what speech gets, you know, uh, suppressed. Down. Yeah. So, you know, in that sense, um, they control the public, the public square, and not just in the United States, but uh, in a lot of the world, right? And, you know, again, the First Amendment is concerned principally with government power, but we resisted the centralization of control over the public square in the government because we didn't like the idea of centralization of that kind of power. Mm -hmm. And so maybe we should resist the idea of centralizing power in the social media companies uh, for the same reason, you know. So that, you know, that's how you get to proposals like, well, maybe we should have a must-carry rule, which requires Facebook to carry everybody, you know, that restricts mm -hmm. Facebook from. But you run up against pretty serious First Amendment arguments on the other side. You know, Facebook can, uh, I think, quite plausibly say that it has a First Amendment right to create the kind of community that wants to write, uh, wants to create. And I'm not sure we really want uh, a situation where Facebook is subject to the First Amendment in the same way that the government is. I mean, it would require Facebook to um, allow pornography on the platform, for example. Mm -hmm. uh, it would allow. It would require Facebook to allow, you know, constitutionally protected hate speech. So Facebook would be required to to host mm -hmm. that. And I'm not sure anybody would see that as a solution to the problems that we're, you right. know, we're facing right now. So that's all just to say that it's complicated. I don't have any answers. Mm -hmm. Okay. All right. Uh, but you know, when you talk about this debate, use a, a debate like the Alex Jones thing. A lot of people pulled out this, he has a First Amendment right. And often I say, well, he does, but it doesn't mean he doesn't get kicked off. It's two yeah. different things. Like I was, I think I wrote freedom of speech doesn't mean freedom from consequence. And if you break the rules of a platform— you get to pay for that, essentially. Yeah. No, I mean, How do I think First Amendment scholars look at this? Because I think people sort of have convoluted, have re been very reductive about the First Amendment, especially when it comes to these social media companies. And the other argument, of course, is they're private companies. They can do whatever they want. Yeah, I mean, I think you have summarized quite well the you know basic First Amendment arguments here. Um, Alex Jones has the right to speak, but that doesn't mean he has the right to be on Facebook's Same platform. Same with Bar. Uh, yes, and Facebook uh, has its own First Amendment rights here, uh, and it expresses them by ejecting Alex Jones from the from mm -hmm. the platform. I think you know none of that would raise difficult questions if it weren't for Facebook scale, mm -hmm. right? Exactly. Um, it's the fact that Facebook is so big and that Facebook. Uh, arguably, you know, controls the public square or arguably controls a large segment of the public square, that's when uh, I think free speech advocates start to get nervous about uh, Facebook excluding people from the platform, especially where there's an argument that they're excluding people uh, on the basis of viewpoint. You know, and you can think whatever you want to about Alex Jones, but, you know, worry not about Alex Jones, but about the next, you know, the next person or, you know, next year or... Uh, you know, who is it that Facebook is going to be excluding next year? And if we know anything from the history of government censorship, we know that this power is going to be used uh, most aggressively against marginalized voices, controversial voices, uh, marginalized voices that we especially need to hear. And, you know, this would not be a worry if Facebook were, uh, you know, a community listserv or something like that, because right. Facebook wouldn't have this kind of outsized effect on right. public discourse and on, right. on our society. But, you know, if you accept, and, you know, again, there's an argument about this, but if you accept that Facebook is rightly 
characterized as the public square or a big piece of the public square, then I think you should be very troubled by the idea that Facebook is going to decide who gets to speak and who gets hurt. Well, now, Mark Zuckerberg was trying not to be able to be able to say. Yeah, I'm not unsympathetic to him. But he kind of has to. Yeah. So what does he do? Well, I mean, I've had him do this to me. I'm like, well, you still, why don't you, why are you the controlling shareholder? Why do you have $64 billion? You, You can't... You can't own it and control it and say you don't own yeah, it. Yeah, look, I, it. I'm not unsympathetic to um, their feeling that you know we don't we don't want to have to decide these questions. Yeah. But I would be a lot more sympathetic to them if um, they were at the very least offering us this low hanging food of transparency and notice and an appeal right. You know, at the very least, they should tell us what decisions they're making. Who mm-hmm. you know who is getting excluded from the square whose voices are getting amplified, whose voices are getting suppressed, mm-hmm. offer statistics about all of those things and offer transparency uh, at the level so of individual cases that? and transparency at the level of the algorithms. Mm-hmm. You know, I, I think that they, they've definitely made moves in that direction over, mm-hmm. the last, um, over the last few years. I think part of the concern is the way people res- will respond to that mm-hmm. kind of transparency. I mean, the transparency could be embarrassing from them, yep. uh, uh, for them. And... It could lead to calls for regulation, mm-hmm. but I still think they have a responsibility to do it. Yeah. So what? But but get more behind the idea that they don't want the responsibility of something they built. See, I think they have responsibility for it, so they got to figure it out. Like it's not my problem. It's my problem, but it's they want to push it yeah. away, and yet they hold all the benefit parts. Yeah. The money. The advertising. No, I mean, I think I think that's I think that's right. And then give us the money uh, if they don't want it. If they don't want to give someone, <laughs> yeah. let someone else run it, and own it, like you, hand it over to someone. You should else. propose that to them. I have. They don't um, like that idea. Well, they have rejected my brilliant idea. I'm sorry. I'm sorry to hear yeah. that. It's a good idea. But you know, this is part of why the Alex Jones debate, you know, again makes me uncomfortable. Not because I disagree that Alex Jones is a toxic person who mm-hmm. is ca- causing real harm to real people. Obviously, he is. But I think that a lot of the responsibility, most of the responsibility for the problems that most concern people like you and me right now, disinformation or discrimination on these platforms or echo, echo chambers mm-hmm. and filter bubble, I mean, all those problems are the result not of people like Alex Jones, but of people like Mark Zuckerberg. Mm-hmm. The platforms themselves are making these decisions. The platforms uh, decide to amplify some speech and suppress other speech. They, they decide to facilitate some kinds of communities and to foreclose other kinds of communities. And they need to take responsibility for those decisions. So what would you do if you were—eventually, Twitter did the same thing, even though you knew they were going to do it, kick, kick off Alex Jones. It took them a while. They wanted to make their speeches about the First Amendment, and then they did exactly what everybody else did. How did you look at that? Yeah, I mean, I, I find it hard to answer that question in isolation because I, uh, you know, I think the Alex Jones thing— it's a mistake to look at it in isolation because the decision that Twitter or Facebook makes is uh, is a more general decision that will have implications for cases involving people who aren't Alex Jones. Right. So that's one reason why I don't like answering the Alex Jones question. Mm-hmm. In it, you know, yeah, fair point. You know, if you ask me, um, do you want that guy who you disagree with all the time to be quieter or to be um, you know, stopped from speaking by the government? If I look at that in isolation, then maybe I would say, yeah, it's totally fine if you know the government stops him from speaking. I don't like what he says, uh, but that's Where not the way the world the, works. The, you know, the, no, of yeah. course. No, in this case, they kind of had a he broke the terms of service. That's right. So yeah, that's he broke an the easy terms of service. 
Well, it's an easy one under their policies. That's right. Yeah, but the that's question I mean. is, you know, are their policies the right ones for society, right? right. And so what I think that's a harder, it's a harder question. What would you do if you were running one of these things and you have all this, not yeah. just, well, but fake news is a whole other thing. But, it, you know, that's a whole issue that's not protected. It's lies, essentially. Yeah, but, well, so so I, I, would, I would do a number of things. So one I've already mentioned, which is provide more information about which so accounts are being taken. Tell, tell us what's going on. Yeah, they don't want to uh, show you that. Both in individual cases they're and more generally. Mm. You asked me what I would do. All right, all right not, okay, I not know what, what they're going to do. I'm just yeah. telling you I'm not yeah. going to do that. But I like it. So, so that's one. There's right. another form of transparency, uh, which is what we're asking for in this letter we sent to Facebook, which is essentially make it easier for journalists and researchers to study what's going on on your platforms. Right. Uh, make it easier for the world to understand let how these platforms Let us solve the problem work. for you. Or let us help solve the problem. How about that? Do you um, ever Jack Dorsey's thing? Journalists will figure out. We'll tell everybody. I was like, really? <laughs> yeah. Because I don't own Twitter stock. I'm not sure I want to do that job. Well, and Twitter also has terms of service that restrict journalists from being uh, the yeah, same kinds ridiculous. of journalism. He, he took it back, yeah. but boy, was that a um, doozy. Yeah, yeah. So, so. Um, What's the word for a doozy? What a doozy. Anyway, go ahead. Sorry. Well, so, uh, you know, another okay, piece so of the one? transparency. Let I mean, journalists I, do it. You know, I was thinking about this today in relation to this video that Breitbart was circulating yeah. about the Google meeting, yeah. right? Mm-hmm. And, uh, you know, if you do conceive of these, you know, Kate Klonick is a, a legal scholar who has this recent article called The New Governors, where she characterizes the social media companies as. Uh, akin to governors, and therefore, you know, mm-hmm. the implication is we ought to treat them that way, and they ought to, uh, well, can we, we ought to demand them things of them that we would demand of our governors. Right. We can't um, vote them out, though. You can't vote them out. But That's you can, a problem. But you can demand that they provide things like due process protections and transparency protections, right? Mm-hmm. But if you think of the social media companies as governors or akin to governors, mm-hmm. then why not also have whistleblower rules? Right. Yeah. Um, why doesn't Why doesn't Google and why, why don't Google and Facebook and Twitter have whistleblower rules to protect people who would tell the public about abuses uh, of one kind or another uh, that are taking place within you know within those companies? Mm-hmm. Because you know again, if you you know if you take seriously the fact that these come as you should that these companies uh, have an outsized effect on public discourse and therefore an outsized effect on our society, then there ought to be some safeguards in place to ensure that the companies are working in the public interest. Mm-hmm. If they are treated like that, because we've never treated companies like this in the past, what other companies have been in the public interest like this? Well, this is not unprecedented TV? at all. TV. Uh, yeah, I guess so TV. The, you know, we we regulated broadcasts in this way, you know, common carriers, uh, the mm-hmm. railroads, you're right? right? You're right. So, uh, and so, I'm not even suggesting that we should think of the social com- uh, the social media companies in the same way. I'm no, not saying that we should think. Yeah, level, yeah. I'm just saying that uh, so, it's not unprecedented so, to require. So to fi- to finish up, um, what regulation do you think is coming? I have no idea. I mean, I, and I think that. Um, if I were the social media companies, I'd be very nervous about that. As a First Amendment advocate, I'm a little bit nervous about it myself. Um, because as people probably were in television time. Sorry? Radio, as people were in television yeah. time. Yeah, but yeah. they got regulated. Yeah, I mean, I, I do think that regulation, I think that we should, uh, we should consider regulating the social media companies. And there are a lot of different possibilities that range from, uh, again, low-hanging fruit like transparency regulation to much more intrusive regulation relating to, you know, content, like a must-carry rule, for example, would be, yeah. And some of those make sense and some of them don't. And uh, it's very unpredictable. Section 230. It's my favorite new thing. Yeah. Why not just make them liable? Then they'll stop misbehaving. They'll, they'll be, it'll be in their interest to do a good job at their job. Well, I think that the, the risk there is that, yes, they will stop misbehaving, but they will 
also take down a whole lot of information that is constitutionally protected and valuable, but they'll worry about liability. And again, you know, I'm not worried about Alex Jones here. I'm worried about, I don't know, Black Lives Matter or, mm-hmm. um, you know, a million different controversial, right. uh, politically controversial topics that private actor, other private actors will write to Facebook uh, or government officials will write to Facebook saying, you know, why do you have this up? And Facebook will panic and take it down. And so I'm not, I'm not categorically opposed to mm-hmm. an amendment uh, to Section 230. It's already being chipped away in lots of— In this FOSTA system, yeah, it's already been chipped away a little bit. I'm not categorically opposed to it. I think it's worth considering, but there are risks. And, um, right. Yeah, and those risks I think we should take seriously too. Yeah. All right, to finish up, what do you think the next battleground is? The one thing we haven't talked about is surveillance. Um, ah, yes. You know, I, I think that people aren't accustomed to thinking of surveillance as a threat to mm-hmm. the First Amendment. They think of surveillance as a privacy threat, mm-hmm. which, of course, it is. But pervasive surveillance also has very real implications for the freedoms of speech and association mm-hmm. and the press. And it's very hard to measure. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, when people are under surveillance, they act differently. But how do you measure um, whether they are acting differently and to what extent they're acting diff- uh, differently? It's a very difficult thing. But there's a whole line of cases from the 1960s and 70s involving more primitive forms of surveillance, but that draw the connection between surveillance and, and, and the First Amendment. And I think that uh, over the next 10 years, you're going to see, at the very least, advocates, and I hope courts, too, uh, Argue this. Uh, yeah, yeah. Accept accept this connection and think about the implications for um, for the First Amendment of both government surveillance and private surveillance. That you didn't give your consent, and they. That yeah, or even if you gave your consent, you know, um, uh, people give their consent for limited purposes, and then the information is used for other purposes. Right. Or uh, you know, the government loves to make this argument in other contexts, but people give uh, one piece of information. Uh, in one context, another piece of information, another context, and together these things form a mosaic. Right. And you can learn a lot more uh, about a person by putting all this stuff yes, together, as data aggregators, you know, are they paid know. to do. Yeah. Um, than you can by just studying, you know, individual data points. And all that has, you know, far-reaching privacy implications. And we started having this privacy debate in the wake of the Snowden disclosures. Uh, but I think we're only now starting to grapple with it, the, the free speech implications. Absolutely. Well, this has been fascinating, and there's more to come. I'm, I want to check in with you a lot, uh, maybe in a year, about where you guys are going and what your next areas are. That'd be I think great. you're right. Absolutely. Surveillance is another one. Things in the home, uh, how what you say in your home and what is protected, like, with these devices. Yeah. Um, how you behave in VR. There's all kinds of things that I right, think people right, and who, right. what your identity is. Right. I think is and and you're you know you're carrying around this surveillance device in your pocket. I as call all it that do. all the yeah. time. No one yeah. ever listens to me. I'm always like this is <laughs> this is you just join the prison system. Yeah. Uh, when you realize it and how much information they have on you. Uh, Jamil, it was great talking to you. Thank you for coming on the show and Thank please you. come again. If you enjoyed the interview as much as I did, be sure to subscribe and leave us a review on Apple Podcasts. You can also find more episodes of Recode Decode on Spotify, Google Podcasts, or wherever you listen to podcasts. If you didn't like this interview, you're not a very smart person or you just want to say hi, tweet at me at Kara Swisher on Twitter. Now that you're done with this, go check out the latest episode of Recode Media. You can find that show wherever you found this one. Thanks for listening to this episode of Recode Decode. Thanks to our editor, Joel Robbie, and our producer, Eric Johnson. I'll be back here on Monday. Tune in then.